there's no escaping it. We've all got to eat. You know, exercise is a big thing, but some of us choose not to. You can just avoid that if you want to. But we've all got to eat and we've all got to feed our kids. And so it's. Uh, I think there's lots of areas, fussy eating and, you know, Try, trying to balance that because it takes so long doesn't it preparing foods and during lockdown I mean I was going bonkers it, I just felt like all I was doing was food the whole time I'd no sooner as I made one thing and cleared up it was time to do another one I mean it literally drove me mad you know mums and food I, I just think you know and I know it's parents and food but I think it predominantly falls to mothers I really do I think it still is the well in our house it is it's the mum's domain Hello again, and welcome to the Mothers Matter podcast. This is a podcast about what matters to mothers and why mothers matter and all sorts of other things. Um, This podcast with Zoe Gilby uh, should actually matter to everyone because she's amazingly knowledgeable about food, the effect it has on our bodies, why it impacts our immune systems, what effect stress has on how we process food and so much more. Uh, We do chat about meals to start with and then we get into the detail of nutritional therapy uh, for much of the podcast. So um, I hope there's a bit there for everyone. Um, I'm delighted to be back with a second series. I wasn't planning on doing a second series. I was planning on just keeping going, but hey-ho, COVID and all that. Um, Thank you to everyone who downloaded and listened to my podcasts uh, in all the first series and particularly also during lockdown. Um, I really appreciate the support. So I'd just like to say a little bit about myself for those who are new to the podcast. Um, I'm blessed enough to be able to give away almost all of my time for free. Uh, I do things that I really enjoy, thanks to my hard-working husband, who's actually able to work hard because everything I do at home, um, taking care of everything at home. Uh, We've got two children who are now 11 and 14, both at secondary school. Uh, I class myself as an available mother, so I'm around when the children need me, and I work, uh, such as it is, um, from home. Um, I help run a charity called the Mwesi Foundation, which gives solar lights to school children in Kenya, um, which fills me with joy. I really, really enjoy doing it. I love doing this Mothers Matter podcast because um, I hope it's of an encouragement to people. And also I find my guests really interesting. So uh, I I really enjoy doing it. And um, I occasionally do some paid work in the corporate finance arena. But most of the time I'm working for free and it's a joy to be able to do so. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Um, I usually add a few comments at the end about the lamentable state of government support for parents at home. Um, And I also make some comments there about any recent research that's come up about parenting. And today's no different. So please do listen to the end of the podcast, um, even if it takes you a week of school pickups, dog walks, cooking and so on. I hope you really enjoy it. Zoe, thank you so much for meeting with me online today. It's a a whole new world of uh, recording online. And I was really keen to talk to you because you're someone I I spoke to a little while ago about um, about health and food and meals and so on. And so I thought today would be a really good opportunity to talk about that bane of mother's life, which is constant (laughs) requirement of feeding of children. 
thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Thank, thanks thank for you. asking me. Thank you. Well, let's start by sort of laying out the, uh, the the groundwork. How many children do you have and how old are they? Oh, wow. I've got four children. Now I have to think about how old they are because I can never remember. <laughs> One's just turned 11. It was actually his birthday yesterday. So I can remember that oh. one. So I have an 11 year old. Then I have a 13 year old daughter. And then I have a 14 year old son and a 15 year old son. Oh, right. OK, good. Right. Three so boys you... and a girl. Yes. Oh, lovely. Lovely. And how, how are they about eating? Uh, I would say they're pretty typical. You know, <laughs> they're, they're pretty typical of most kids. And being a nutritionist is no, uh, is no barrier to the tantrums, the complaints, the whinging, if it's something that they don't want or the wanting to eat the food that I would prefer they didn't. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's an irony, but it doesn't, it, being a nutritionist does not make it any easier, I can assure you. <laughs> but I, they're all actually, right and I just keep at it. <laughs> I just say, I know. not so much choice. Well, I suppose actually that it's... Um, a, a real battleground it's a battleground for teenagers that they know that that's something you care about a lot so if they're going to attack you they can attack you in the food department yeah. and refuse to eat something and say well just because you know everything about it yeah yeah I but, think I think I try as much as possible to be to be serious about it is to take the emotion out of it and just be quite matter of fact I mean I've always I've always been an advocate of healthy eating um uh, it's just something I we eat very in a very traditional way I think probably how I ate when I was a child which is that that's the food and that's what we're having <laughs> try not to pander too much to fussiness having said that my eldest really doesn't like milk he's convinced it gives him a headache and the more I understand about food I think that actually could be true so he doesn't really have milk and he doesn't eat cheese. Um, so I think it's, it's quite it's good sometimes to listen to your body. And it could be that he's just worked out intuitively. That's something that isn't isn't great for him. So he avoids that. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the typical battle about vegetables, although probably less so now they're getting older. Um, but I, I really try and cook for everyone. And we all have pretty much the same meal. And I just give them a tiny bit. I mean, my, my eldest, he's probably my most fussy, my first child and the youngest least. I think there's no coincidence in that. <laughs> yeah. um, but he really doesn't like uh, aubergines, for example. And we love aubergines. I love aubergines. And he's like, oh, it's slithy toves again. You know, he really, <laughs> really doesn't like them. But I just keep serving them up. He used to pick them out. Now he'll eat a few, just tiny bits. I think just little bits, little and then just don't make a thing about it let them leave it on the side of the plate if they want to but it just you know regularly it'll reappear but no I I remember when my when I was thinking about this podcast I remember my my middle boy who absolutely detests fish uh and I you know every time you pick them up from school I don't know about you but my kids it was what's for supper you know what's for tea what's for food it's the first thing they ask you what what are we eating and you're like I haven't even thought about that yet uh and one particular day it was a uh, fish pie and it that was it tears sulking tan- and you're like walking out of the school gates with this absolutely inconsolable child I thought if anyone knew this was really just about a fish pie <laughs> they would be quite staggered but uh there you go that's good for you but he's still oh, at the yeah. fish pie. And now, 14, he will eat the fish pie and he will say, oh, that's lovely. Is there any more? So I oh. got there eventually. <laughs> how, the, how was that transition? How, did you just keep giving it to him and he had a little bit? Yeah, that's right. Oh. Just a little bit. Yeah. And, then, and I think also if they're having enough of the stuff 
that they really enjoy. So you find a family meal in our house, uh, you know, they love a chili con carne. So if you're having something that they do like, and then after that, and I just have to say, okay, you don't like this much, but sometimes, you know, you just have to eat the stuff because it's good for you. You need to eat more fish. It's good for your brain, help you be clever, you know, and just kind of be quite, quite, uh, keep it light, I think. And just, just, yeah, but it, but you have to have it. <laughs> That's what it is. That's what we're having. So tough. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is really difficult. My children do that, particularly if they don't like a meal. They'll say, "What's next? What's for tomorrow?" Yeah, <laughs> we're still eating today because yeah. they want to have a glimmer of hope on the horizon that yeah. nice food will come in. And I've said to them, "You can't just have beef burgers, sausages, you know, beans the whole time. You have to right. eat other food." When they say to me, "Well, you know, what's for tomorrow?" I mean, I just make a joke of it and say, "Well, it'll be this if you don't eat it." <laughs> so <laughs> it'll go back in the fridge and be wheeled out again. Um, uh, yeah. Well, we did. We did get to one point when it was so stressful that they weren't eating. They were, you know, they're complaining about everything. I said, "Right, you go through the recipe books and you write down twelve things you're prepared to eat, Great. and they can't yeah. all be burgers." sausages and variations on that I think that is a really good idea actually getting them involved and I do that um I've got a few really nice um cookbooks and if you leave them out actually it's surprising how often they will pick them up and they'll flick through and I say well if there's anything in there that you like the look of um you know we can make that and actually do you want to make that because it's a life skill, isn't it? Learning how to cook. It's re- a really, really important life skill. So um, we've done that a few times um, and, and they're, they're always much more inclined to enjoy the food that they've helped make. I think, it's, yes. you know, if, they, if they've been involved in preparing it, then it, then, of course, it's going to be so much tastier than if, you know, mum had done it. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a great idea. Yes, we well we we did that, and I go back through it. But they were much better on choosing puddings than on the pud. <laughs> yeah, and it did occur to me actually one time that I only cook meals that I like. You know, I don't deliberately yeah. cook meals that I don't like. So actually, yeah. I'm lucky because I get to choose what I'm eating. And if they made me eat something I didn't like, then I'd I'd be a bit cross. I don't adore cooking. And I don't adore vegetables. But, you know, you just have to do it. Uh, like so many things in life. And then it just becomes a habit. And it's mm. such a good habit to cultivate. Um, I think there's ways of making them more palatable. I mean, we, you know, olive oil, which is really, really good for you. We put olive oil on greens and maybe some balsamic vinegar. And it just sort of makes it a bit more palatable. Um, and I find for myself as well, and I know the kids prefer it, is if the things are chopped up quite small or maybe mm-hmm. grate something. So something that they might not like if it's grated courgette, um, you know, they might prefer that fried, um, you know, in a bit of butter or something with with garlic rather than a big chunk of it because it can be a bit mushy. Um, so I think it's finding ways of sort of making it look, look less intimidating than a great big pile of of you know kale or something on the side of the plate small small bits and variety I think is probably easier than a big pile of broccoli or a a mix of something you could set yourself a game actually in our small world of um, trying to get a vegetable then in that they don't spot yeah or actually i started because they don't like mushrooms i started putting in cooking food with mushrooms because i and then they don't have to eat the mushrooms but i think well the, the flavors there and i can eat the mushrooms if i like the mushrooms yeah i mean that's the other thing with mushrooms mm. and they are really good for you mushrooms 
that's a great a great thing to incorporate. But if they don't like them, I think a lot of, uh, if, again, my eldest, he's not overly keen on mushrooms. I think they, some people think they're quite slimy. Um, so if you've got a big bit of mushroom, it's more detectable. But if you whiz them up in a, like a Magimix in a fruit processor, uh, you can pop that in with a bolognese and it wouldn't really be that noticeable. And it just, it makes it quicker to cook mm-hmm. as well. So if you're, you could blitz up your celery and your carrots and your mushrooms, add that with your bolognese and they'd be hidden in there. In fact, I put, I sometimes put uh, little bits of courgette in a bolognese as well. And it's amazing how much you can pack in. If it's small, they can't see it. They just don't notice it. If once it's sort of tomatoey and garlicky, I think you can you can hide quite a lot in that kind of sauce, can't you? Mm, mm, you can get away with things. And how do you go about planning your week's meals? Sure. I think it varies from week to week. I'd love to say I'm one of those mums that's super organised and I sit down with my planner. And in reality, it's really not like that. I, I have a pretty well stocked store cupboard. I'm sure all of us have got a better stock store cupboard since lockdown because <laughs> we suddenly realised, <laughs> you know, we needed stuff in tins. So I've usually got things like a jar of passata and tomatoes and kidney beans and chickpeas and those kinds of things that you can either mix with vegetables and turn into something or pop some meat in there. Um, and I I mean, pre-lockdown, I would try and shop little and often, I think, because there's less waste. We use Riverford, the organic vegetable delivery um, suppliers, which I think are fantastic. And we get a seasonal box a large seasonal box of veg so that also helps me out in explaining to the kids well this is what I've been sent by Riverford it's what I've got to eat because this is what I've been given so you know there's a lot of kale in there um so I tend to be dictated by what what I get um from them which is great because it encourages me to eat things that I perhaps wouldn't normally choose you know they're you and, and it looks so beautiful it comes with hardly any packaging and you get this lovely box and it really does you know, it acts on your body and your brain. You look at it and it's colourful and vibrant. And actually, it really makes you want to prepare the food. It's not hidden away in plastic. It's just there. And it does look really inviting and appetising. So I tend to see what I've got uh, and then just kind of always make sure I um, in fact I get my meat from them as well so we've always I always get a roast chicken and and a chicken carcass you can buy from them to make some uh, meat stock. Um, And then just sort of see what kind of day I've got ahead, how much time have I got. Um, so I don't, I kind of have, I think we've all got that kind of mem- uh, menu in our in our mind, the things that we know how to cook without looking at a recipe book. And so I probably do quite a lot of that, of regular things, you know, typical family food, like your fish pie and your casserole and your bolognese or roast dinner. And we do a I do a paired back roast dinner usually on a Monday because that's the day that the chicken arrives. And, it, you know, it's not with all the trimmings, but it might be with salad in the summer or, you know, sweet potatoes and, you know, spring greens, whatever I've got in the box. Um, but I tend to make sure that I've got stuff in the freezer. I'm a, I'm a real advocate for frozen vegetables and frozen herbs because they you've cut down then on the um, peeling and chopping time so I think that's where it all goes wrong I know for me in the evening you get home you perhaps you've got a headache the kids are super whingy everybody's a bit tired it's pouring with rain you know and you it gets to be six o'clock and it's like oh no I've got to, what am I gonna cook I was delighted when I found out a sweet potato is a vegetable and it wasn't just potato because I thought yeah. I could do I could do homemade chips and sweet potatoes and that's a vegetable that's brilliant yeah, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. love that yeah I'm I'm the I'm quite different in that I can't really cook from 
uh, scratch. I have to I have to use a recipe. I can never remember okay, anything. There's, there's right. one one pasta meal I can make, and the, I'm constantly. I mean, same with playing the piano. I can never learn the music. I always have to sight read. Um, so I find I have to plan the meals in advance and I okay. spend, you know, an hour going through and then working out like this Saturday, Amelia's refereeing two football matches. And so we're going to have late lunch on Saturday. So what can we have that can be already cooked? And then supper on, you know, weekends, meals just happen one after the other. They're yeah. really quick yeah. and they just finish lunch and then it's supper time. And yeah. I think this, this is ridiculous. This is lots of food. I think also cooking cooking once, eating twice or three times. So cooking something that you can then put in the freezer. So you could perhaps make a sauce, like a bolognese sauce. But actually, if you added some kidney beans and some black beans, you'd then have a kind of chili con carne or things where you've got the base of it. You can just add a few other things and pop those in the freezer. I think that's that's helpful. So if you're needing to spend more time because you're looking at a recipe, then I think if you can then just do that the once and then batch cook and have a store in the freezer. I think that's really helpful. Yeah, I do that. I have two freezers and I have a load of it. And then what I've started doing recently, because the children have got bigger and they eat more, is just because I've only got two, so there's only four of us. I keep at least one portion back. And then usually once a week we have a series of ones so they right. can choose that's which great. one they like. And they, they, they like any element of choice. They love, even if it's choosing something that, you know, they've had before. Yes. And like that. But it's just the, the sense, you know, because I do it all together. It takes an hour to plan the meals yeah. and about yeah. an hour. I, I do all my shopping online. Now to do it, well, 45 minutes online and then there's a putting away. And then the, the, it's oh. just relentless. It's it is. It's time-consuming. It is time-consuming. It really is. And I think <laughs> there is... There, there are ways of cutting down on how much time it takes, but I think that's the biggest barrier and it's the biggest barrier I see in clinic. People say, I just don't have the time. So I think it's finding ways that fit in with the kind of food that you like to eat and how your lifestyle is. And sometimes people find, actually, I, I had a client who um, she worked long hours, but she got up quite early, but didn't have to leave the house. And she, we then sort of talked about her, how she could fit it in. And she discovered actually she could do quite a bit of stuff in the morning. And so it's just finding ways of actually, I could find that time on little and often, I think is so much easier to fit in than having a whole day set aside. But then for someone else, I know people who really love Sunday radio on, I'm going to do a whole load of batch cooking, take over the kitchen for the day, and I'm just going to do loads and loads, fill the freezer for the week. So I think it just, you have to find something that works for you. But spending that time thinking about, well, how do I live my life? How big is my family? What kind of food do we like to eat? And then what are the foods that we need to make sure we eat more of? And planning it a bit, I think is hugely helpful because otherwise it it becomes such a burden and I think then that's when we grab convenience foods and more processed foods which we all know we want to eat less of so it, I think it's just more helpful in the long run to spend some time planning how you're going to go about it. Mm, absolutely and actually we haven't really um, introduced you in terms of your your life what did you do before children? Uh... Before I had my children I was I was in nursing many moons ago and decided that wasn't for me I really wanted to focus more on um kind of uh, health promotion, disease prevention. Um, so I became, uh, went uh, back to studying and became a, an environmental health officer. So I worked um, 
in you know environmental protection I did some food safety some health and safety and then I uh, when I was pregnant with Alexandra I was uh, managing a health and safety team um, at a large unitary authority and doing some food safety management as well and then I had always planned to stay at home actually once I had a baby I felt it was massively important to just have that time with a baby um and so I'd already made that decision, I think, in my mind, right, well, I'll, I'll have to park the career thing for a bit when I had him. And then, um, you know, two, three and four followed fa- <laughs> fairly quickly. <laughs> and I rapidly realised that going back to that kind of work just wasn't going to fit in with the children. It wasn't going to fit in with my husband's work hours. Um, I've always been really interested in in health, obviously. That's that's all I, I've done, really. And food and the impact that food can have on our health. And it just felt like a natural progression to study. I was reading so much about it. I thought, I wonder if I could do this and thought this would fit in really well with having a family because I can work for myself. I can choose my hours. Um, so, yeah, I went, I went and uh, studied the, the master's at Worcester University um, in nutritional therapy. Mm. And were you able to go straight into a master's or did you have enough? What was your undergraduate? Was it nursing? Uh, it, was a, it was a BSc in environmental health. So, yes, I, always, oh, okay. I already had a science degree. Um, so then and I'd actually done some postgraduate um, training as well. I, I'd done s- some more science postgraduate training at um, Birmingham University while I was still at work. So I've got quite a sciencey background anyway. So, mm. yeah, that was OK. Bit rusty, so, though, I have to say. <laughs> and, and how did you fit in? Uh, how old were the children? Well, how old was Alex when you, or the youngest uh, one, when she, you started studying? My youngest was about seven, I think. I was thinking about this the other day. So, yeah, he was about seven. Um, I'd done bits and pieces while they were small. I, I was involved in running the um, preschool. So, I'd done bits and pieces. I'd always had a few odds and ends that I did. Uh, but never worked so I was really around for the children and I think by the time I think how old are they what year are they in in year seven he was probably about year two would that be about right I think Mm -hmm. so almost going into that key stage two Mm -hmm. Um, and so I thought yeah the time's right I thought if I leave it any longer I think it's one of those things that I just might never have got around to it so I thought no time's right I I shall do it now so yeah he would have been seven and then Alexander would have been about 12 I guess yeah Mm. And did you manage to do the studying during the day or did you have to stay up late? And Yeah, <laughs> during the day, <laughs> staying up late, at weekends, during the holiday. It, it was a huge commitment. You know, it really was. It was a really big commitment. Um, but I, I, you know, bit by bit, I worked my way through it. But yes, it's it, it wasn't easy, I must say. It never is, is it? Trying to, um, mm-hmm. I mean, you're a full-time mum. So in effect, you're a full-time mum and, and then you're doing all this other stuff as well. But uh, yeah, I did. <laughs> it did involve lots of late nights and it probably was really, really bad for my health. <laughs> so I, I really so I'm really glad. I, I'm glad to have finished it. Yes. And how long did it take you? Four years. Four years part-time. Right, yeah. right. Yeah. And um, well, now's probably a good time to talk about what, what was it in? What was your master's in? It's in nutritional therapy. It is specifically in nutritional therapy, yes. And, w- and what does that cover? What's, what is nutritional therapy? Nutritional therapy is, in a nutshell, it's about providing personalised nutrition and lifestyle advice to people. Um, I also could describe myself as a nutritionist uh, because I... I because I this the 
knowledge that I've gained and the skills that I've gained through the course enable me to give general advice. But I think the crux of nutritional therapy, which makes it different to a nutritionist, is that we are skilled in working one-to-one with clients and finding out what is it that's got them to where they are. So people with a particular health problem, there can be many, many causes. And obviously, it won't be the same for everybody. So you could have one condition has got lots and lots of causes that would be different for everybody um, or lots of causes or one cause creates a different condition in someone else because we are all unique. So it's really about that um, detective work in, in finding out and unpicking what, what's led you to where you are today. You know, perhaps why does somebody have um, polycystic ovary syndrome or, you know, why is somebody having recurrent migraines? It's really trying to get to the root cause of why that's happened. Whereas traditional, you know, medicine tends to be looking at a symptom and trying to give you a, a tablet really or a, a pill for that particular symptom. This is more kind of looking, digging deeper to try and find out, well, okay, the, the symptom's there, but why is it there? Trying to work out why. And what sort of, uh, what investigations can you do to find out? Uh, we can do loads of functional testing. So stool samples are really useful to work out the state of your gut microbiome. Um, we sometimes ask for um, clients to go to their GP and perhaps get vitamin D status, see what their vitamin D is like, or they might have had a blood test. They might come to us with a blood test. And, and so we use that to form um, the basis of, of, of our investigative work. Um, but anything we we can do um, breath tests to look at what organic acids are are there. Lots and lots of quite complicated tests depending on what we feel the client needs. Uh, some of the tests can be really really expensive, so we would only really advocate a test if it was something that we thought would definitely add to the picture for that client. Um, some people don't need any tests at all. By chatting to them and working through and looking back over their history, perhaps multiple antibiotics or something like that, or a, a traumatic event, it can sometimes give us clues to the picture. So sometimes we can work without using tests, uh, but sometimes they can prove really, really valuable. So it just depends on the client and depending on the picture that we see. Um, that's interesting about vitamin D. Is vitamin D particularly important in digestion or it's particularly important in our immune system. I think there's been quite a lot of press coverage recently because of the COVID pandemic about just how important vitamin D is. But it's it's an interesting one because it's not actually a vitamin. It is actually a hormone. Uh, mm. And predominantly, we, we get this from the sun and it's the action of the sunlight on our skin, um, which which converts it in, into usable form of vitamin D. Um, but it's it's very, very important for the healthy functioning of our immune system. But it also has a role to play in, in bone health and lots of other um, processes in the body. So, yeah, and it, it's lots and lots of people are deficient um, because we spend so much time indoors. Um, and because also, I think, obviously, because of the campaigns to prevent skin cancer, we're all told to put lots of sunscreen on and make sure we're covered up. So actually, I think in some ways, the message has gone too far. So some people are very reluctant to spend any time in the sun. But it's, you know, it's really important to get, well, the sunlight's very, very important, particularly, but also get the sunshine on our skin. But you can get it from food. It's a, it's a slightly different version, but your body can use it, um, things like uh, fish um, oily fish with bones um, and in fact things like mushrooms if they're left out 
on a window ledge in the sunlight, they then contain more vitamin D. So it is possible to get it <laughs> from food sources. But I think the current guidelines are for people during the winter to supplement um, because we just don't get so much sunshine in the UK. It's just not enough. Mm. And does the immune system have an impact on digestion? It, Yeah. I think it's it's they're both connected. It's so complex. Our body is so clever. I mean, it's just it's jaw droppingly awesome. Um, your the health of your gut microbiome, so the microbes, the balance of the microbes that you have in your gut, have a direct impact on the workings of your immune system. So your your immune system is about eighty percent of your immune system is actually in your gut. And if you think about it, the reason is because that's how you can sense what's going on in the outside world. Your skin, of course, is a barrier to the outside world. But inside, starting in your mouth, all the way through your um, digestive system, you, um, you have what's called the enteric nervous system. And this has got so many nerve endings, more nerve endings. Well, it's the second mo- most nerve endings in your body um, after your brain. So more nerve endings in your gut than in your spinal cord. And this is for sensing the outside world. That's how your in- immune system, your body knows what's out there. What, what am I being exposed to? So it's hugely important. And, and that, that balance of the information coming in and the microbes, which are in your gut, speak to your whole body and your immune system through through your gut. So it, it is in your gut. So it, it's impossible to overstate how important it is uh, to, to your healthy immune system functioning and the health of your gut microbiome. And so what, what can you do to help, apart from vitamin D, uh, what can you do to help the, your immune system? Well, eating well is is really really crucial so key advice generally um i would say is i always say to my clients eat the rainbow eat the rainbow every day as many different colors as you can and that's another way of making it quite fun for children as well it's kind of like how many colors are there and how many colors have we had today and you can get all sorts of charts and sticker charts for how many colors you've had and to put a little tick or get a little sticker but it's so important to get those colors in because food is information for your body um so all those colors are giving different information to your body and they're helping your body processes work properly um so eating as many different colored vegetables and fruit, particularly blues, things like your blueberries and your aubergines. I think that's one area where people probably have the least. And of course, your greens are really important. Um, But things like um, really good quality meat, if you're you're a meat eater, and I and I I would advocate eating meat small small amounts of good quality well looked after um, animals which are grass fed um, because that's going to nourish your body um, and healthy fats so things like uh, grass fed butter so butter butter from grass fed cows um, cheese fermented milk products like kefir um, have, have got fat in and protein. Um, and olive oil for healthy fat, coconut oil. Um, I think really focusing on those as, as a way of eating healthily is really important for immune system. Um, but also how we deal with stress. The two things are so connected. You can eat really, really well, but if you have other stresses in your lifestyle, then 
you may not be absorbing all that really highly nutritious food that you're eating because your gut's just not working optimally. So dealing with stress and making time to make sure that you take a few minutes out to relax is really, really important. Just spending two or three minutes every morning before you reach your phone or, you know, get involved in the in the general chaos of a household. If you can just spend three minutes every morning just doing slow breathing, it just helps your body reset so that you're operating from your parasympathetic nervous system, which is this calm, calm nervous system. Um, because we have such stressful lives, it's difficult to escape it. And I think even if you don't feel particularly stressed, um, it's the constant pinging of your email or your phone or just general chaos. It just helps you um, get into that relaxed state, which is so crucial to help your nervous system work properly. It's so it's so crucial for your gut to operate properly. The the downside of stress as well for our um, gut microbiome is that these pathogenic bacteria that are in your gut, which we do need, but you know, it's, it's important to have, it's a, it's all about a balance. Um, but the potentially disease causing bacteria are, are fine. They're kept in check by your healthy beneficial bacteria. Um, they can be a bit opportunistic. So if they know that you're stressed because you're, you're, uh, producing stress hormones, these microbes can detect that and actually it enables them to proliferate. So that's how you end up with a situation where your um, your gut microbes become imbalanced. You get too many of the bad guys, not enough of the good guys. Um, so it's really important to find ways that work for you. Some people like meditation or yoga, but for some of us, it's just not practical to have, you know, that time or you know, so I think start small and just doing slow breathing, trying to make the gap between your breath in and your breath out longer and having a, a longer breath out than a breath in. And there's loads of stuff out there or on the Internet if people want a bit more advice about that. It's so simple. But the benefits of doing that every day actually are really, really um you know, it's a big payoff. It really is. But the other problem with stress and the gut microbiome is that these pathogenic bacteria start to produce toxins um, to our body, which can create a situation where the lining of the gut, I don't know if you've heard this term leaky gut, it's, it's quite, oh, yeah, yeah it's, it's around quite a lot. But what that essentially means is that you, the tight junctions in the cells in your gut lining, you get gaps in them. Um, which is because of the um, dysbiosis in your gut, this imbalance of bacteria in your gut, which then allows all sorts of stuff to go through those gaps that really shouldn't be there. And some of it is really quite toxic. This is how it then gets into your bloodstream, migrates to various bits of your body where it shouldn't be, so partially digested food or other toxins. And that's really it creates a, a situation where the body is very inflamed. I think we've all heard quite a lot about inflammation. Um, and then it, it, it can really set up a problem where we think this is really the basis of most of the chronic diseases which affect us. Most chronic conditions have the basis in this gut dysbiosis, which then leads to this chronic inflammation of the body, um, which over time can lead to a myriad of, you know, long term chronic health problems. Like, Are you, Would you link that in with, um, I don't know, even lung diseases or cancers or anything? Or are you talking about stomach issues? No, over the whole body. 
anywhere in the body, depending on your particular genetic makeup, depending on what what genetic information you've inherited from your parents and your grandparents and your great grandparents, you know, in my family, it's arthritis. So I might have a greater predisposition to getting arthritis. If I had get gut dysbiosis, that may then lead the um, conditions to be such in my body that then I develop arthritis. So things like arthritis, uh, potentially um, heart disease, cardiovascular disease, these these are the kinds of things. So yeah, long-term lung conditions or Alzheimer's, dementia, most of these chronic um, health effects, which really are impacting us now as we're living longer, have their root cause in this inflammation, which is directly caused by this this leaky gut, this gut dysbiosis. Mm, that's re- that's really interesting. So you're just just to sort of summarise, see if I've understood it. So if your um, uh, immune system is compromised or your gut is compromised in some way, uh, then it reduces, uh, it can affect the rest of your body and then make you more open to developing. That's right. That you might already have a. That's uh, right. Yeah. A predisposition to. That's right. Yeah. The the genetics that you have, that that doesn't. Your, I mean, your the information that you obtain in your body through food can switch your genes on and off, and it's you know that's then when you start thinking about food in those terms, you're thinking, I'm going to eat my kale. I'm going to (laughs) force myself to eat spring greens because you suddenly think, without that. I won't have that information for my body to work properly and I won't be able to feed those healthy bacteria. All that food and the broader range of food that you can eat, I think the big message is have as broad a diet as you can. Try try to have lots of different um, vegetables. Try lots of different types of herbs and spices and you know lots of different things because the greater the variety of food that you eat, um, whole food, real food, um, the more um, diversity you'll have in your gut, which gives you, you you've just got more in the game. You've, you've got the best <laughs> chance because you've got more products that your body needs. So if your body needs more, more of that, then, it, then it's got it, it can produce it. Of course, if your diet's limited or it's very poor or it's very heavily processed and your body can't use that information very well because it's it's too processed, there's too many chemicals in there that your body just doesn't recognize, then I suppose it's hardly surprising then that your body can't work efficiently and you're perhaps feeling foggy headed and, you know, um, tired, you know, Mm. and that, yeah, is really, a lot of it is linked to really the health of these microbes in our gut. 90% 90 of our body is, the cells in our body are these microbes in our gut. 90% of the cells. 90%. Incredible. It's just mind blowing to me, really. So you just think that to look after them, it's crucial. You, we ignore them at our peril. They're, they're, they yeah. are so important. We had a – well, we've got an example of things being triggered because when my son was born, he developed um, bronchiolitis and ended up in intensive care. And oh, he was very touch and go for three weeks uh, from when he was aged three weeks to six weeks. Um, and so my husband was looking after the, our daughter and so on. And then Charlie came out just on the 19th of December. He came out of hospital. And then on the 4th of January, Andy, he fell ill and um, and they thought it was, uh, oh, I don't know, any, anything else. But it turned out it was Crohn's. And his oh. his family going back through the mother's, uh, the maternal line, have always had dodgy tummies and, you know, or they had a bit of a tummy issue. Mm. Um, 
and they di- yeah they diagnosed Crohn's and and that he was very ill with it all year oh, and he was in gosh. and out of hospital and yeah. uh, so on and ended up with various stomas and then that that year I mean Charlie was fine <laughs> he yeah. was fine he recovered gosh. yeah um, and then that year I had really bad stressy tummy aches you know it was awful uh and uh yeah and so I think that was the trigger that yes, I think it yes. was latent in him yeah and then yeah. that stress brought it out yes I, yeah I think you're I think you're absolutely right and that that's the kind of thing where you know had that stressor never happened he may have been able to escape that that may that may not have happened but yeah and interesting that you say uh going back through the maternal line because we always ask our clients a, a little bit about their background and about their family history because there's a lot of clues there. And of course, where where do we get our initial microbiome from? From our mothers when we're born. Mm-hmm. So often, babies born to mothers that have this gut dysbiosis are going to, when they're born, um, as they go through the birth canal, you know, they they swallow bits of mucus and fluid, and and that's where they get their initial um, seeding for their microbiome they're going to inherit a slightly imbalanced gut microbiome. The the bacteria there is going to be slightly imbalanced. And of course, if the grandmother had that from her mother, you can see how over time in families these things play out because it's 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 there. The dysbiosis perhaps was there from the very beginning. Mm. It's, it's interesting. And I'm interested as well in the link between stress and I get sort of bloating and then really yeah. sore around my, around my lower back. Um, yeah. And it's it's two things. One is stress. And the other thing is if I snack in between meals. So it's been very good for my weight management because I, I think, well, I'm not going to have a bite of this because it's going to yeah. give me a tummy ache and my yeah. din- I won't enjoy dinner and then I'll be all right. And then the next morning I'm all right. But that's yes. it. I just write off the rest of the day. I'm all right with nuts. I can eat nuts. But oh, okay. just a snack of anything during the yeah, day I, and I it'll me off. that's interesting you should talk about snacks as well because um I think that we, we've got into quite a snacky culture where especially with children actually this idea that they need to graze all the time and you have this really interesting um process in your body it's called migrating motor complex and basically that clears your gut out so it's it's sort of a cleanup operation between meals so that uh feeling you get you know when your stomach really growls you're really hungry and your tummy rumbles you really want that it's a really really good sign that your migrating motor complex is operating well it's cleaned all out and you're ready for something else to eat and by snacking what we do is you're interfering with that mechanism and you've perhaps got partially digested food, um, which then means that that's producing gas because you your body really just needs to eat and then rest and digest, then eat, rest and digest. So interesting that you're through experience, you've thought actually snacking's not good for you because I think snacking's not really good for any of us. It's mm. it's far better to have a meal, a proper meal, and then have a break and then have another meal. And the, the snacking, you don't really need snacks. Mm. I think mm. this is a modern marketing ploy to tell us that we need these snacks and actually we don't. 
Well, it was. It was in the 70s, wasn't it? They had to try, I saw a program on it. They had to train people to want snacks. And they ha- that's why they had to do the advert of um, the, the Milky Bar Kid and a Mars a Day helps you work rest of the yeah, day. Yeah. You know, all those really effective marketing. Oh, and a, yes, and a finger of fudge. It was the treat. You could have between enough. meals, couldn't you, that's without ruining your appetite. Yeah, all nonsense, then, all rubbish. And then they had, to, they had to train men to do it. So that's why I had Yorkies, which are not for women, um, which I still don't eat Yorkies because oh, I know right. I'm not allowed. <laughs> yeah, so they had a Yorkie, it was a man's snack. Yeah, that was the yes, the lorry driver yeah. with his Yorkie bar. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah right. we're not so, we are not meant to snack. It's not it's not good to snack. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And what is just going back to the stress thing, um, and we might have already covered it, but what what is it that's triggering a, the sort of build up of gas and things when you are feeling stressed? Uh I think what's, what's happening the there is because you are stressed, you're so you you have your nervous system your autonomic nervous system it's divided into two parts one is your sympathetic nervous system that's your uh, prepare to run away there's a problem you know your body's worried uh, and the other one is your parasympathetic nervous system that's where your calm and um you know re- relaxed state is restored that's really where you want to be operating from this parasympathetic nervous system when you're stressed, you're immediately flicking into your sympathetic nervous system. So you're in that flight or a fight phase. Your blood goes to your muscles and your heart because it's it's getting you ready. You've got to fight or I've got to run. I haven't got time to be digesting my food. That's why when you're anxious and worried, you need to go to the loo. Your body doesn't, Mm. I can't be done with that now. I've got something really important going on. Now, what we want is flexibility between these two systems because there are going to be times when we do need to flick into this fight or flight. But nowadays, we don't need it so much. Obviously, when we had predators, that was really important. Now, you're flicking into your fight or flight because somebody said something mean on Facebook, you know, something annoyed you, you got cross with the traffic, you know, I'm late, I'm hassled, you know, oh, I've forgotten to sign a homework diary or, oh, I've, you know, we're constantly in that rushing state, which is why doing the work, why mindfulness is so important. Get yourself into the gratitude, attitude of gratitude, so that you try to focus on things that calm your nervous system down. Because all the while your blood is being diverted away from your gut in this fight or flight stage, um, you can't digest your food properly. So then it, it starts to ferment and the fermentation process makes gas. That In its simplest form, that's what's happening. What, what also happens is the, the, the stress hormones that you make interfere with your body's ability to secrete the right products that you need to digest your food properly. And it also contributes to this leaky gut. So it just becomes a vicious cycle that the more of the stress hormones that you make, the more those opportunistic pathogens think, oh, it's an opportunity. They grow and then they produce more stress hormones, which makes you feel more stressed, which is how you lead to this vicious cycle of kind of anxiety feelings, brain fog. I can't think straight. If you think about it, if you're in a fight or flight, your brain hasn't got time to have a weighing it up. It's got to make a decision um, using your reptilian brain rather than your thinking brain. So, you know, something as simple as that phrase, that being stressed, it has really far-reaching consequences. And often the the perceived stress nowadays is 
really the hassle of a you know the WhatsApp keep dinging or do you know what I mean? They're not real stressors actually. Mm. They're, they're, mm. But it's having that same physiological effect on our body. And does that do make you, sense? Yes, yes, it does. It does. <laughs> I'm trying to calm down whilst immediately being wound up by how wound up I should be. Do down. your breathing. Do your breathing. I need to be calming down more. I must calm down more regularly. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Calm down, woman. Yeah. <laughs> um, and think about children and stress and food in children. You know, when children say they have a tummy ache or they don't want to go to school, I've got a tummy ache. Um, I did hear actually when Charlie was very little they the doctors said they because they can't locate pain yeah. children can't locate pain they think it, they will always say it's tummy ache when yes. it isn't necessarily yeah. but you know sometimes it is a tummy ache and what what's the relationship between what's causing their tummy aches well I think I think your GP's right in that I think when children are very small they they can't locate where the tummy ache is so it may be they've got tummy ache because uh you know they have got tummy ache or it could be they've got a pain somewhere else or they just generally feel uncomfortable they perhaps feel worried and I think particularly in small children um it's quite stressful that transition between being at home and where everything feels very natural and very calm to having to be in that school environment. And depending on what that school environment's like and on the general personality of the child, I think it can be really difficult. So when they say they've got tummy ache, that's a kind of manifestation of, I just feel uncomfortable. I just feel worried. I just feel sad. You know, perhaps the school day is, they're just a child that doesn't like school particularly. And they, or they could be worried about something else that happens at school, um, but but it could equally be that they do have an underlying food intolerance that perhaps they're eating something which is giving them tummy ache. So I think it's always worth investigating, and I think sometimes it it could actually be something with their gut. They might it might be that they perhaps are um, gluten intolerant. So it could be that they're having. Um, gluten containing foods like their breakfast cereal or toast and it could be that that is actually giving them tummy ache or it could be they're getting tummy ache because they if they're having cereals particularly quite high in sugar and that's creating a sort of fermenting process in their tummy um then causes them to be bloated that could actually be giving them a cause of tummy ache but it's a very very complex area it's certainly not my speciality um but um it's definitely worth investigating and and i think this the way that we look at uh, advice is it's 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 diet and it's lifestyle so always with anyone with any complaint it's okay what are you eating but also what what else is going on in your life what other things are going on you know is the is the school morning a bit stressy you know because children mm. pick up on on the on the mood of the family so is is there a parent that's getting a bit stressed are you always a bit late so the tummy ache is because oh, I'm going to be late for school you know it's, it's sort of looking around the whole the whole picture uh, mm. all of the different factors quite complicated you, you said when we were chatting earlier there's a link between wanting to eat carbohydrates to sort of that helps calm children yeah, yes, down. That, that's right. Uh, um, often what you find is a child that's got um, this imbalance in their gut bacteria uh, will crave quite sugary food uh, because the this, these opportunistic bacteria are, are able to send out uh, chemicals which, which actually make you want to crave the very food that they, that will feed them. I mean, this is <laughs> just like unbelievable, <laughs> isn't it? Mm. And by ingesting that food, it feeds that those bacteria. They then create as 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 their um, their waste products 
endorphin-like chemicals, which our brain then absorb. So it makes us feel good. So then we're more likely to reach for those foods. But it also sort of dampens any kind of pain response. So when the child perhaps has something else, they they associate that other food, perhaps even healthier food, with a stomach ache and um, don't want to eat it. But because they get these endorphin-type chemicals um, from perhaps pasta and cake, those kinds of foods, they're more likely to want to eat those. And that that can be quite a contributing factor in children who who become quite fussy and quite restrictive to just wanting those beige foods, which are, which are the very foods that we want less of. You know, we want the colour. We want to quit the beige. But, yeah, it's... So is that why is there a link between stress and weight gain? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean that in itself though we could chat for hours just about absolutely because um cortisol which is your stress hormone cortisol is really helpful in small doses it, it helps calm you down but when you have this constant constant stress it's almost a bit like you you just become resistant to the effect of that cortisol and that is a real driver of inflammation this systematic systematic inflammation we were talking about and your your gut disposes and it also promotes fat storage particularly around your middle so stress is definitely definitely linked to to weight gain because your your body then is conserving your energy and it, you're definitely laying that down as 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 fat around your tummy which then becomes active in its own right it starts to secrete hormones in its own right mm. yeah what oh, your, what your tummy does yes yeah this fat the fat around it, oh, okay. it, it, yes it, it starts to become uh, you know uh, it acts on it on its own it starts to secrete more more hormones which of course if your body is already in a situation where it's imbalanced and your hormones are imbalanced it further contributes to it so what we look at as nutritional therapists is how do we break the cycle of this? What do we need to do? And it's always, yeah, what can we do with the diet? But always we're looking at these lifestyle factors, always. Well, it's interesting because I remember some reports saying there's a link between um, children in nurseries and weight gain. And uh, they were they were saying that maybe if they're in nurseries for long hours, the parents don't know if they've eaten, they feed them twice. But we know as well that nursery settings are very stressful for babies. Mm. And so yes. they'll be stressing and then possibly putting on weight as a, you know, storing food. Yes. Um, yeah. Yeah. As a result. And also, uh, I think that there is this element that when you eat, you're you're automatically signaling to your body as you eat, you're signaling to your body to go into that parasympathetic nervous system if you remember that's the rest state because obviously you need to rest in order to digest your food that's why we say rest and digest so ah, i think actually ah. sometimes you get you because your body wants you to get back into that state it, it almost makes you eat to get you into that state and of course then that messes up your ah. hormones about whether you know when you're full or not you start to interfere with these processes so your body doesn't make the right hormones to let you know that you're full uh, you know so you feel more hungry so I think this is where then you know it, it, this could actually be the basis of perhaps comfort eating in some way that your body's trying to get back into this 
parasympathetic mm. nervous system state. Yeah. Well, we. Uh, I wanted to talk also about family meals, and in a way, it's a, it's an irony because family meals can be a very stressful time. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if all goes well, they should be a positive time, and they're mm. actually the time when you think about you want to spend time with your children, mm. but actually you have to be cooking and washing up and all that sort of thing. That when you sit down for your meal, that is time with yes. the children, yeah. uh, and it's very valuable, and you can be eating slowly and so yes. on as opposed to eating in front of the tv yes uh, yes as, as long as it's not a stressful experience because they don't want to eat anything you've cooked yes yeah yeah i yeah, couldn't agree more yeah yeah i do i yeah i agree with you but yes that's sitting in sitting all together i mean actually it's one of the few opportunities when they're doing after school clubs or you're saying your daughter's got her football matches to referee you know there's so little time isn't there so sitting down together and we do do that every, every night I would say we'd, unless one of them's away staying at a friend's house we always sit down uh, you know sometimes my husband who's working from home at the moment but he wasn't always able to be there because he gets home quite late um, but certainly we would always sit down together always eat together and um I think that's really, really important time for the family to sit together, chat through the day, you know, and, and chat about things like, you know, the food and it being healthy for you, you know, just in a low key way. Um, but yeah, hugely important and definitely no eating in front of the telly, always concentrating on eating and chewing. It's amazing how many people <laughs> don't chew their food properly. Yeah, lots and lots of things have an impact, don't they? Oh, and we want to, I wanted to touch on your actual dissertation, which was gluten and epilepsy Can you that's just right talk a bit about yes. what you said I, I I wanted to have a look at I'd read a bit of research about um people with epilepsy for which had no known cause and how a gluten-free diet had helped them with their seizures and so I wanted to have a look at where where are we at with all the current research what do we know about people with um, epilepsy and the effect of a gluten-free diet and what I looked at was people with celiac disease who also had a diagnosis of idiopathic epilepsy so epilepsy with no known cause um what, what did they find when they put those um, patients on a gluten-free diet? And the first thing to say is not very much research out there at all. Nobody's really looking at this issue. Um, but what, what I did find was that in those studies, there, there were a number of people who really did improve their seizure control through going on a gluten-free diet because they had celiac disease. Um, and I think this is really important because it shows us that, um, you you know, your body is such a complicated system. Things aren't just isolated to one thing. You you know, if you've got celiac disease, there's, there's a, a chance that you'll have leaky gut, which means that it might be creating problems elsewhere in your body. And that can be anywhere in your body. Um, so in this instance, um, you know, there were some favorable outcomes. People either uh, had a reduction in their seizures or they um, could reduce their medication or for some people they actually completely stopped having seizures and for some people it made no difference at all but I think what it shows is the importance of this personalized nutrition personalized lifestyle advice really we can't give blanket advice for everybody every we're so everyone's unique we've got our own microbiome we've got our own family history we've got our own life experiences all of those things come together to shape our health. So I think one thing that it that really brought out of it is we we should be able to try some of these things for people rather than immediately the first port of call is um, 
anti-epileptic drugs without any consideration for how could diet help these people? And I think this is probably, uh, you could probably extrapolate for many, many conditions is, well, let's look at how diet could help and how lifestyle could help. Because I think most people could improve their condition, whatever it is, with appropriate changes in their diet and their lifestyle. With um, celiac disease, it's, I mean, I just happen to know people who have it. Is it becoming more frequently diagnosed? Is it more frequently in the population? I think this is a kind of matter for debate. Is it? Is it certainly it's something that seems to be becoming more widespread, but is that because we now have the techniques to diagnose it? Was it always there um, or, or do we just... Um, is it now we think it's more prevalent just because we can test for it? People are much more aware of it. Um, there's also the complication of this non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So people can have a sensitivity to um, gluten, but they're not celiac. Um, so that kind of muddies the water as well. And, and that can create all sorts of um, problems, in particular, actually neurolog neurological problems, uh, but they don't have any gut symptoms whatsoever. So you get no tummy ache, no bloating, no diarrhea or constipation. You just have other, you might get really bad migraines or, or other brain fog or, or other movement, strange movements that you can't control. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's probably a bit of both, but it's a very, it's a very complex area. And also what some people are saying is, is there a role to play in this with um, glyphosate, the, uh, which is what is sprayed on the wheat crops to desiccate it, to dry it out before it's harvested? Could it be that what we're seeing, the damage that we're seeing in people's guts, celiac disease, could it not be the gluten? Could it be the glyphosate, which is sprayed on the crop? Mm. So we're damaging <sighs> our gut. So it's a complicated area. Yes, yeah. They, I think the guts, like the new space frontier, isn't yeah. it? The more the more people learn about it, the more important it seems to be. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And it and this is relatively new research. You know, this we're learning all the time. Um, and and the the more it's being studied, the more we're realizing is it, it's different for everyone. You know, we're, we're, so it's. Yeah. yeah, one thing one thing you were talking about just a minute ago was about how changing diet can have an effect on all sorts of things. But when I hear uh, some of the cancer podcasts and so on, people say, "Oh, people are always telling me not to eat this and not to eat that." Um, uh, I guess there's a lot of sort of fad diets and things that don't necessarily make a difference, or that that you don't you don't want to start saying, "Well, it's partly your fault because you've eaten the wrong things." I mean, some illnesses are going to crop up regardless yeah, of what you're eating. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, you know, bl blaming anyone for any choices that they've made is completely pointless. It's in the past. I think certainly strengthening your body to be able to cope, particularly if you're undergoing, you know, um, really quite grueling treatment like chemotherapy, strengthening your body uh, to cope with that by really eating as, as much um, healthy food, healthful, nourishing food, nourishing your body through that process, I think has, has got to be helpful. But I, I think generally I'm a real sort of 80-20. You know, you can't, sometimes people say to me, do your children still have birthday cakes? I think, yeah, you should see the cake I made for Edward yesterday. It's huge. You know, of course, because that life is about enjoyment and food is so much a part of that. So certainly I think no, no whole food anyway. You, you shouldn't, you know, food is there to be celebrated. It's a huge part of enjoyment in life. So, um, 
I think definitely I wouldn't want to blame anybody and 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 say, um, you know, these are foods that you must not eat. I think it's really important, especially with our children, where they're learning about how they relate to food. No food is a bad food. You know, you can, you can have a, a Mars bar, you can have chocolate, you can have it, but just it's a treat. And I think that's perhaps where the bad habits creep in. Your body is really able to deal with, you know, every now and again having these foods, but they you don't eat them all the time. That's not your main diet. It's something that you eat occasionally as a treat. And I think perhaps that's that's where we where we need to be with advice. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, talk about advice. So can you talk about what your practice is that you're setting up and how that's going to work? Uh, well, I'm, I'm based at home and um, predominantly now doing um appointments over over zoom much much like we are now um so um and I, I think at the moment it's early days so I shall see the picture of the clients that I get but my, my particular interest is particularly in neurological conditions um and uh hormone balance um and gut health um but but we'll we'll see i think sometimes the clients find you don't they and then your your <laughs> practice becomes what what it is because that that you resonate with your clients um so yeah and uh, the, the process is usually we would uh chat through to see whether people think that uh nutrition and lifestyle advice would be something that would work for them because actually it's a lot of work for people. It's a commitment. You've got to change perhaps things that you've been doing for years. And that is really, really difficult. And are you, so how can you um, um, assess them if you're doing it online? Because well, you talk about I, taking samples and stuff. Oh, well, we could, we organize, um, that would be basically, um, you have an arrangement with a laboratory and you can order a test for a client. It gets sent oh, okay. to their home. They then do that and then they either post it back or sometimes you need a courier to courier it back. Or sometimes you write to, with their with their permission, write to their GP, say, could I please organize for them to have a, a blood test or, or something like that. So, yeah, they don't need to come to see me to get that test done. That can be sent out to them. And then I can explain to them how to do the test. You know, we can have follow-up appointments and I can explain how to do the test. Mm. And what, what neurological issues are there other than migraines? I'm aware of migraines being sort of food-related, but what else might be? Uh, well, I'm quite interested in um, autism, ADHD, um, th- that kind of thing, uh, fatigue, brain fog, you know, any number of things really that kind of seem to be a kind of brain, what people would perceive to be a brain-related um, issue. Yeah. What, is there a dietary link uh, or something that would affect autism in the diet? Um, I think what what I what we can see is that where quite often um, with children who have um, autism is that they do have this gut dysbiosis. Now we don't know is it it's chicken and egg was the gut dysbiosis <laughs> there which gave a propensity to the autism or do autistic children have uh, gut problems but we do often see that children who have autism do have gut issues they have gut symptoms and I think it can be helpful to improve diet and lifestyle advice that can help it can help it's it's I think there are for most conditions looking at tweaking the diet for that particular individual and then giving some advice on what other things they could do in terms of um, lifestyle things like you know sleep exercise relaxation that together can be really powerful to to eliciting some improvement for people so would you look at it as 
almost like a, a car service, just making yourself the best you can be to cope with whatever you've got. Yeah, I think that's a really, yeah. really good analogy. I think that's it. That, yeah, exactly. It's being the best that you can be, optimum for you. And for some people, that means they're always going to have a long-term problem with something, but their body is in the best possible position to cope with that. And it may be that you're always going to need medication. One thing I think is really important to get across is nutritional therapy is not an alternative uh, kind of method. Um, lots of people ask, oh, is it alternative medicine? Absolutely not. You know, we want to work with uh, medical professionals and GPs and other healthcare professionals and counsellors, you know, be part of a team so that you can deliver care for somebody that's genuinely holistic, that, that they really can have lots and lots of input because these things are complicated and there are, you know, psychologists that have got their expertise and GPs that have got their expertise. And I think it's just feeding into that so that that people have a network of people they can call upon so that, yeah, they can be the best version of themselves that they can be. Great. Well, thank you very much, Zoe. I've kept you for a long time. There's so much to oh, talk it's, about. Yeah, there is. <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Claire. Well, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. And thank you to Zoe Gilby, who um, gave up her time and shared so much of her wisdom with us. Uh, I think something like this raises so many questions. And if you do have anything you'd like me to raise with Zoe, um, please email me. My name's Claire Pay. I haven't mentioned that yet. And uh, I'm on Mother's Matter at Outlook.com. So um, there, are, there are so many food-related questions that, uh, that I'm sure you have. So the things that I was going to mention about um, society today, well, there's an early years healthy development review call for evidence, which um, the Prime Minister's asked Andrea Leadsom, the, the MP, to arrange to sort out. And it's on it's online until the 16th of October, so it might be too late by the time you hear this. But uh, what's interesting about that is they are looking, again, I'm sure they've done this before, at a new review into improving health and development outcomes of babies and young children in England, uh, including the time from conception to the age of two, which they consider a critical time for development and can impact physical health, mental health and opportunities throughout life. Well, um, we, we know all about that. Uh, and the group Mothers at Home Matter campaigns on this uh, quite regularly to enshrine the value of having mothers at home with their children and babies able to look after them and give them that brilliant start to life. Anyway, this uh, topic came up on Woman's Hour and I thought I probably can't stand to listen to it and I, I was right. So um, Andrea Ledson was on uh, talking about it and no sooner has she sort of read the title than Jane Garvey, who has many qualities but who sees it as a failure of society if any women are at home to listen to Women's Hour live, Jane Garvey came in. I mean, given that this is talking about under twos, with, well, what is the government doing about working parents and work, working families? Well, leaving aside the fact that she only sees anyone working as someone who's paid, and uh, she was quite um, hostile in her interrogation of Andrea Leadsom, what really annoyed me was the fact that we're supposed to be just giving a bit of time to talking about what do babies need 
And she's just talking about what is the government going to do to enable two parents to go out to work for as many hours as possible. That was the thrust of her interrogation of Andrea Ledson. Thankfully, I'd arrived in, a, in my car and I was able to turn it off and go and, you know, lie in a dark room and calm down. But uh, yeah, so that, that uh, call for society to comment on that is up there. Um, Mothers at Home Matter is an, an excellent campaign group, which uh, if you would also like to make your voice heard, uh, they, they will help campaign on your behalf. If you're someone who thinks that it would be valuable for under twos to spend time with their in a you know in a home setting and not for mothers not to feel that they have to be worrying about money and uh, for mothers to be able to be emotionally available as well as physically available and really to feel you know endorsed by society that what they're doing in those first two years of their children's lives is really really worth doing and they wouldn't be better literally employed if they were out in a paid job somewhere else anyway so that is the early years healthy development review call for evidence. Then on another side, there's um, Erica Commissar, who is a New York psychoanalyst. Uh, I've recorded a couple of podcasts with her. I think she's fantastic. She is someone who has um, been able to prioritise her children around her practice and is advocating quite bravely for the value of the under threes, uh, quality time, well, time for parents to spend with the under threes, why it's really important to prioritise that time. So she has uh, been writing in the New York Daily News uh, regarding uh, research that shows that, that quality time isn't enough. And this is what she says, that um, we often hear as parents that the quality of time is more important than the quantity of time. But the truth is that that's a myth that children need both and that quality time often only appears during long stretches of quantity time. So you need to be hanging around with your children, uh, particularly for teenagers, before that quality time might pop up. You can't schedule it for, you know, 20 minutes in the evening. So... New research shows that the amount of time parents spend with their youngsters is also correlated to their academic and long-term success in life. So uh, this report that she's commenting on studied children from year 10, which is ninth grade in America, and it showed that if a parent is there, even if the parent's working part-time, um, so if the parent's there part-time or full-time, that had a significant impact on the child's academic and future career success, which uh, is, is very significant because in apparently in the US, it might well be the same here, that where both parents work full-time, it's 46% of all two-parent households who are working have both parents working full-time, which is huge. It's not even one of them working part-time. So... Um, her report says that it's far better to raise teens in a two-parent environment and have at least one parent spend more time with the adolescent rather than working more, even though working more may bring you sort of um, financial advantages. It's better to uh, cut, you know, step back a bit, give that time to your children and uh, invest in their future as well. So that's a, that's a really interesting report. But also what's interesting, I think, is that... Um, the research has had to be quantified. And in order to quantify the outcome, they're looking at uh, 
academic and career success. So looking at grades and looking at probably how well they're doing in a career and what um, salary they've got. Now, you could argue that when people, uh, when young people are feeling secure and in a, a safe home environment, they're able to work more. And um, when they're able to develop good relationships with others, they hopefully have better career success. So I would like to think that actually um, the important thing here is the, the emotional impact of having a parent around in terms of giving a, a really solid base for, for that child. But uh, it has to be proved in terms of outcomes. And so we're looking at career success and academic success, which, which we know isn't actually everything in life. Life and that being able to form good relationships and being secure and uh, having a healthy self-esteem is really important. So uh, that's it from me today. Um, thank you very much to James Ede, who is my producer and uh, puts all this together for me, which I really appreciate. And uh, if you'd like to contact me, as I've said, I'm on mothersmatter at outlook.com or I'm on podcast, my um, Instagram and Facebook are Mothers Matter Podcast and Twitter is at Podcast Mothers. Oh, sorry, one more thing. Um, Mothers at Home Matter have got a conference coming up in November and it's going to be online. So, um, and there's going to be a very small cost. I think it's five pounds or so, which will be a really good opportunity for people from all over the place and all over the world to join in and meet um, virtually like-minded people. Okay, thank you for listening. Bye.